Our gospel reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him and all the region along with the Jordan, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Now, even now, the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with this water for repentance, but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is at this is at his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The word of the Lord. Grace and peace to you from our Savior, Jesus Christ. You brood of vipers, the axe is already at the foot of the trees, and he will clear the threshing floor. These lines from John the Baptist in our passage this morning are directed at the Pharisees and the Sadducees as they come for baptism in the Jordan River without having properly repented. These are the religious elite, if you will. They have been studying the Hebrew scriptures, following the law with zeal, or perhaps in modern Christian terms, bringing their kids to baptism or to Sunday school every week, giving time and money to their local congregation. They are regulars at Adult Forum. They have taken Pastor Keith out for coffee. They attended Beer and Carols last week. And perhaps most likely, they are seminary students. (laughs) Pharisees and Sadducees were not doing bad things. They had merely skipped a step. So, naturally, John calls them snakes. And yet, our bulletin covers this morning and the candle we lit on the Advent wreath say, symbolize, and declare peace. Now, I'm not sure about you, but this text does not make me feel very peaceful. In fact, if I were to make a list of things that were least likely to make me feel peaceful, being compared to a snake, I think, would only be second to the threat of being chopped down with an axe. But I think that's the point. John the Baptist is trying to wake people up. He's using this intense language because he knows that Jesus is coming and that Jesus' life and ministry is about to change the world. He does not have the luxury of time. He is not able to ease people into what needs to happen. He has made this project his first priority and he cannot dawdle. When we examine this text, we learn that for John, this type of urgency is not necessarily negative. Despite hitting one of the most common phobias in the world, snakes, I looked it up, it's not just me, John is not telling a hopeless message. His urgency is 
almost what we could call excitement. Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one the prophet Isaiah was speaking of. He is our sa- the Savior we have been waiting for. You can read this text as him practically begging others to see the miracle he knows is coming. He's inviting everyone into that good news that God is fulfilling God's promise. John declares that while he baptizes with water, the one who is coming, who we are preparing for this season, he baptizes with fire. The message version of the Bible translates John the Baptist's message this way. I'm baptizing you here in the river, turning your old life in for a kingdom life. The real action comes next. The main character in the drama, compared to whom I'm a mere stagehand, he will ignite the kingdom life within you. A fire within you, the Holy Spirit within you, changing you from the inside out. Ignite the kingdom life within you. That is it. That is what John is so excited about. This is what has him on such a tight time schedule. He wants people around him to notice what is about to happen. When John the Baptist is talking about repentance, it is as a means of experiencing the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is about to usher in. One of my favorite Lutheran scholars and current professor, Dr. Timothy Wengert, taught me this Latin phrase recently. It's called incurvatus in se or to be turned in upon yourself, to be so focused on yourself that you miss what is going on around you, that you are unable to see the bigger picture of abundance or need, joy or pain, in the world, in your community, or even in your family. Incurvatus inse is to forget that it is not all about you, to forget that Jesus is coming to fail to recognize that Jesus baptizes with fire to ignite life within you, to ignore the ways the Holy Spirit seeks to change you from the inside out, to move on from those inner whispers of the Spirit, to walk away from injustice, to avoid being affected by the pain in the world, to reason away not being as welcoming as we know we should be to fail to recognize that Jesus baptizes with fire to ignite life within us. The repentance John demands in our text for today is one of being honest with ourselves and letting go of our own opinions, our own desires to make ourselves righteous or smarter or more helpful or more accomplished or more holy than others. John knows that it is only when people look outside of themselves that they will see Jesus, that they will allow Jesus to ignite this kingdom life within them, that they will get to participate in the kingdom of heaven on earth. And this is where the peace comes in. Peace rushes into our lives and our world when we identify, remember, point out, and make more space for the kingdom of heaven by looking outside of ourselves. Peace rushes in with the kingdom of God because biblical peace is something more than the mere absence of conflict or a restful feeling within us. Biblical peace is the process of making things, people, communities complete or whole again. The word for peace in the Hebrew Bible is shalom, and it is often used as a verb or something that you would bring to one another. For example, if your ox ate some of your neighbor's crops, very relatable, I know, 
you would bring them shalom by replacing the crops and restoring their fields and wealth to, the, um, to completeness again. Perhaps a more relatable example of shalom would be paying for someone's car door to be repaired after you or maybe a younger member of your family has left a dent in a parking lot. This divine peace means that when earthly kingdoms make shalom, the stopping of fighting is only the first step. To truly bring shalom to countries, families, or individuals, we must work together and act as one whole unit rather than two pieces. This is the kind of peace Jesus brings to earth, repairing peace that completes human relationship with God once again so that we can begin working together. When John tells us that the kingdom of heaven is near, he's telling us that Jesus is bringing us wholeness with God, and he's inviting us to create wholeness in our relationships with others. To bring the kingdom of God is to make ourselves, our families, our churches, our communities whole once again. This peace is what God ignites within us in baptism. In our Romans reading for today, Paul is instructing Christians in Rome to bring shalom to their church by welcoming the Gentiles into God's family. Paul says it is by steadfastness and encouragement of Scripture that we might have hope, and the Word of God would grant us to live in harmony with each other. Yes, hope and harmony are only possible through God's mercy. However, there is an instruction. Right after he prays that hope and harmony would be granted by God's mercy, he tells the people in the Roman church to welcome one another. That's it. That is his command for the church to be welcoming. He goes on to explain that this should be as Christ welcomes us, that is to say, free to all we encounter and for the glory of God. He gives us the how and the why that we are to welcome, but he does not let us off the hook for the task. So, I had a snow day on Monday, and no, there was not actually snow. It was one of those days that is sort of a New Jersey panic, which has happened a few times since I've been here. Um, the forecast predicts any amount of snow, and all of New Jersey freaks out, giving me a snow day at 5.30 in the morning, and there's no snow on the ground. All of this is to say that I didn't have class or work on Monday, and instead of working ahead, I decided to watch the two most recent versions of the classic story, The Grinch Who Stole Christmas, back to back. You know, in case my critical race theory professor decides to have me analyze racial dynamics out of the United States at some time in the future, I figured preliminary research on Whoville was a great use of my time. In this whimsical story, the Grinch, a man who has never felt he fit in with his community, has distanced himself physically and socially from the rest of the Who's. This becomes most obvious during the Christmas season because Whoville is quite obsessed with Christmas, and the Grinch, he does not steal Christmas to keep it for himself. The Grinch hates Christmas, and so he steals it so that nobody else will experience it either. Through a series of interactions with a really kind child, Cindy Lou Who, and when stealing Christmas doesn't seem to stop the celebration from happening at all, the Grinch realizes that Christmas is about love, family, and community, not the items he has stolen at all. And what happened then? Well, in Whoville they say that the Grinch's small heart grew three sizes that day. Perhaps because of this increased blood flow, 
but more likely because of his realization and new understanding of the holiday, the Grinch re-enters Whoville and is welcomed in to the Christmas feast. Even though he stole Christmas. Even though he didn't have anything to offer. Sure, he could return the things he had stolen, but he wasn't bringing a dish to share or presents for the kids. He wasn't a well-known doctor giving good advice. He was not even willing to lead a town committee. And yet, he was welcomed into the feast. And in a true show of shalom, he was invited to carve the roast feast. He, just by being there, made the Christmas celebration whole. Silly as my example may be, the kingdom of God really does look, at least in part, like this big feast at the end of the Grinch Who Stole Christmas, a huge gathering that is not complete until we have welcomed all to the table, game, meeting, worship service, and party. We live out peace by looking outside of ourselves and allowing God to ignite something new within us so that we can welcome others. And that is how you can participate in the kingdom of God, by bringing shalom to the places God ignites within you. Amen.